0: Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And I'm very excited today. I've got on a very special guest, William Ramsey. He's been on the show before, and we've talked about the West Memphis Three. He is an attorney, author, and an independent researcher. And he's written a host of books, all of which I recommend you guys check out. He has written Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley. in the New World Order, which is going to be the subject of what we are talking about today, as well as his book, uh, Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. He's also written Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. He has also written a book on the um, Order of the Nine Angles, Global Death Cult, that's the name of it. Um, and he's also made a number of documentaries. It says two on Amazon, but I know that you've made at least one or two since then. How many documentaries are you up to now? I'm at, I'm at five. I have to change that on
1: Amazon. Five documentaries. Uh, let's see. Three on my books and then two on the Smiley Face Killers phenomenon.
0: Yes, and they are all very interesting in addition to his books. So I recommend everybody go check it out. But how are you doing today, Mr. Ramsey? I'm doing well. Thanks for the invite back. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm glad to be talking with you. It's always good speaking with you. And I'm excited to talk about Crowley today because he's someone who has such an outsized influence on the culture. But at the same time, he's someone who, unless you know you're in conspiracy circles or parapolitics or whatever the preferred term is, you don't really hear about him all too much, even though, I mean, he is kind of a, a, a man who contributed very much to the spirit of the age today. So I guess my first question that I'll ask you is what made you begin to want to research Aleister Crowley and write these books on him and do all the work to expose what he was up to?
1: it really came out of my interest in researching 9-11. It was really, I was a 9-11 researcher. Once I knew something was really not right with that story back in maybe 2003, 2004, I just noticed all these numerological numbers that are outside of the realm of kind of uh, random possibility. 11, 77, 93. I didn't know their meaning, but I was researching it. There was a guy by the name of Colonel May, uh, Captain May, excuse me, who, who was kind of a, also a nine eleven researcher, and also recognized this kind of overabundance of this number eleven in the dates and so I just kept my eyes out and I realized just kind of doing this research that it really went back to Crowley. these numerology went to Crowley eleven was really his number, his prime number for a wide variety of reasons, and it's actually a kind of a prime number in the Western esoteric tradition so once I did that kind of made the connection between the events of nine eleven and Aleister Crowley that really uh, incentivized me to really go back and find out who this person was. I had remembered the uh, Ozzy Osbourne song, Mr. Crowley, or Crowley as he says it, but uh, so I kind of had a topical understanding. I really wanted to go back. People said he was a dabbler in the occult, so I went back and I read all of the available biographies and then went back to the source material, like what did he actually put out, and he was a almost a rabid writer. He had tons of books and poetry, books of poetry, and journalism and articles, and it really is almost impossible to even compile all of his writings, because it's never really been done, even by his really other kind of occult-interested or cult leaning biographers. But anyway, I did my best to go back through. I read his biography, which is in, uh, what he called an auto had geography or, or a biography of the saints. He was kind of making, it was called confessions. He was making a joke, but, uh, so that really kind of led me into it. And I just kind of was seeing his effect upon the greater culture. I'd grown up on Led Zeppelin songs. So I'd heard about him and the interest of Crowley there in black magic. And so really I went through while I was reading, while I was doing my first book, Alistair Crowley, nine eleven 11, and the new world order, I was kind of laying the groundwork for a follow-up book and just by doing the research and being online and checking out videos on, on YouTube. So that first book I put out in 2010 and then I read and I got distracted from writing my second book, Alistair Crowley shadow over humanity and wrote abomination about Damien Eccles, who was a huge Crowley fan. And then finished this book. Uh, my third book, Alistair, uh, Alistair oh, is it Children of the Beast? Alistair Crowley shadow of humanity. So, I really tried to compile as much available information in there and kind of set the stage. And just like you said, he's kind of an unrecognized subterranean, sub Rosa influence on so many cultural events in uh, in the, really the world. this darker events, almost there's almost always a Crowley tie, even to Manson and Zeppelin and Ozzy Osbourne and perhaps 9-11 and all these events that I think it was very important to, to aggregate all that information. So that's kind of why the, the I did the research because I thought I was doing, I think I still did is doing kind of unique kind of research into Crowley and putting his stuff in the light. And I, I think I proved definitively he was not a dabbler. who was actually really trying to be what he would call the devil's chief of staff and really dedicated his life uh, to occultism from a, he was Born in 1875, died in 1947.
0: So. Absolutely. I have the noon siren going off here, so sorry to the listeners if you guys can hear that in the background, but something that I think is very interesting about Crowley is just that he is somebody who does just appear time and time when I research things. Before I even started this podcast, I did a episode with Jimmy Falun Gong of Program to Chill about satanic influence in soundcloud rap and one of them was this guy named ghost Main, who is an open thelemite and uh so we talked a lot about him and i mean i mean he's he practices thelema you know so i mean his stuff is just chock full of references to crowley and john d and people like this and uh there's this other guy who um who actually passed away who was in his group lil peep and i saw a picture of him and i believe it was an apartment of his and there is the uh, the symbol of Thelema. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the, you know, weird-looking... The universal, universal Hexagram? Yes, the universal Hexagram, a painting of that on the back of his wall, and he has a giant number 11 tattooed on his torso and stuff. And then oh, wow. the first episode I did on this show was about um, Alfred Kinsey because I did a bunch of research into Alfred Kinsey, Um, and just found all this good stuff, and it's actually what spurred me to decide and do this podcast in the first place, because I wanted to share all this, you know, interesting information that I don't think a lot of other people had found about Kinsey, and, I mean, Kinsey would meet Kenneth Anger down at the Abbey of Thelema, and, you know, just throughout this show, it is, you know, something, he's a person who, just pops up in all these weird little subtle ways and I actually had somebody message me hey Luke could you do an episode on Crowley because you know I mean I I I hear you mention him and stuff but I don't know that much about him I was like well I know just the guy to have on the show but anyways um so can you just tell us A little bit of background information on Crowley. Maybe we can start with his childhood and being raised in the Plymouth Brethren and kind of his early years leading up to him getting this rabid fascination with the occult.
1: I'd be happy to. Before I get to that though, there was another rapper that is very much
0: influenced by Crowley. His name is Ab Soul. Have you ever heard of Ab Soul? Yes, I have heard of Absol, but I'm not super familiar with him, and I did not know he was super interested in Crowley.
1: Yeah, there's a really telling um, interview with him where he talks about Crowley, and he has this kind of back tattoo of, I think it says Thalema on it. He didn't, I guess he doesn't really know Crowley was a pretty rabid racist, so I think it's kind of unusual for an African-American guy to... See that but you can actually look it up online it's uh him. who is alistair crowley absol explains it's pretty incredible but yeah he has a Crowley tattoos all over and stuff but anyway crowley for those who don't know was born in 1875 in uh uh what is it what was the name close to where shakespeare was supposedly born um but uh the he was born into a family called the that Practiced a form of Christianity. They were the exclusive Brethren. It was a subset of the Plymouth Brethren. So they thought of themselves as even kind of more rigid, kind of Puritans. Even as this kind of central, it was uh, John Nelson Darby was kind of the religious progenitor of this group. A uh, guy kind of had maybe some questionable influences on Christianity, but. More or less, he grew up kind of in a very uh, strict environment. They read the Bible before meals. His father died at age 12, and he was put under the care of his mom and his uncle. They sent him to what would be the equivalent of English private schools, which were very brutal. He almost died at one uh, and came home and was privately tutored and was able to, through the entrance exams, enter into Cambridge, where he graduated. Well, he left without taking a degree, but... He was obviously a member of, he was very well off, his family was very wealthy, so he was part of kind of the apex of this classist system in the UK, really at the apex of the uh, British Empire. So he had all the benefits of the British Empire, traveled, he was an avid mountain climber, and climbed throughout, you know, did challenging uh, mountain climbing uh, trails or whatever, runs in the UK, and actually traveled to Switzerland. And did pretty challenging uh things there, and eventually he would go to all the way to India or, or Nepal or that area and and try to ascend two big uh mountains, Kanchenjunga and uh, what was known i think as K2 or Chogori at the time. And those are actually all in the in the kind of uh newspapers at that time, so people were very much interested in following that story. but that was all financed by his family money. He never really had to work. And really, at this certain point of his life, when he came out of, uh, of Cambridge, he said he was interested in three things, and that was mountain climbing, poetry and occultism. And so his interest in occultism led him to really studies and, and following people like Madame Blavatsky, Theosophy, and led him to a group that had started, which was really a, a group of ceremonial magicians called the Golden Dawn. So he was in the Golden Dawn. And that group eventually exploded, imploded, in part due to his influence. And he eventually actually took, he took an oath not to disclose any of their rituals or any of their secret teachings, which he then exposed very crowly. And uh, there's actually a lawsuit about that between him and one of his old kind of influences, a guy by the name of, who went by the name of McGregor Mathers. So uh, he kind of moved on. He was traveling. He actually went to Russia. It was probably around that time when he left Cambridge that he became kind of an asset of British intelligence. Back then it was called the Secret Intelli- uh, Special Intelligence, SIS, which eventually kind of branched off to two different departments, MI5 MI6. One was for the UK. The other was in a kind of international. But he was probably always writing things back and collecting information and sending it back to the UK in all of his travels. But eventually he was sent, he formulated another group called the AA, the Astrum Argentum, based on the Silver Star or the Moon. That was kind of an international kind of, uh, you know, by mail training where you would have a teacher and then people would follow it. And still like extant around, I think, uh, in a certain form. So that would be a way to teach magic. That's the way he would do it. He eventually came to the United States during world war one he actually came to the united states on the lusitania which the sinking of the lusitania brought the u.s into the war and so Crowley was here uh he had you know he's always doing these magical workings kind of his best known ones uh, if people even know it is the alamantra working which he did in downtown manhattan and the the results of that working uh he put together this picture that looks exactly like a great alien he called it lamb Based upon kind of uh, the Tibetan notion of a lama, so he kind of it kind of was a honorific term for this being that he he supposedly contacted. But he also was writing for two pro-German newspapers: the International and the Fatherland. I think was the other one's name. But he was—I mean—you can read through his autobiography. He's clearly in contact with other intel people. And uh, I think Spence was the name of the guy who did Secret Agent 666, that book, but that he proved that Crowley was working for uh, British intelligence at the time. And at that time, the real import of the uh, the British Empire was to get the U.S. involved in the war in World War II. And uh, once that happened, once the U.S. joined the war, Crowley kind of went back to the U.K. He said his work was done. So the U.S. joins the war. The war ends. Um, so Crowley goes back and eventually starts this abbey, Abbey of Thelema in Cefalù, Sicily, in Italy, and it's kind of a magical training center. And that eventually implodes after three years. He's literally kicked out of Italy by Mussolini, on direct orders by Mussolini, and uh, gets sent back to France. He's in France. He's hanging, is uh, associating with other literary figures. He runs into Hemingway, you know people that you know. So there's all these interesting people who have memories of uh, Crowley and are influenced by Crowley, such as Somerset Mom, People might know that name. But uh, so he's there. Then in the 30s, he ends up in um, in Germany. So he's there as Hitler's coming to power during the Weimar, the end of the Weimar Republic. Stays there, then kind of comes back, starts ailing. He was always a junkie, never really in great health had asthma, and then he goes back to, ends up in Hastings, very southern part of the UK, in a kind of higher-end old folks home, and passes away in 1947. So that's kind of a brief overview. I kind of go into greater detail in Prophet of Evil about him, but he really thought he was a prophet. He thought he was a prophet of the new Aeon, so he had this kind of uh, idea of Aeonic change. He really wanted to make like a thousand years of change what he called the birth of the child which was the birth of kind of the aeon of horus so this uh, being from ancient egypt the most important thing that happened to crowley in his life was the receipt of the book of the law which became a centerpiece of his religion that happened on his way back from a trip with his then wife rose kelly or she said to him they're waiting for you he supposedly received this book by automatic writing and uh that Uh, was by a being he called awas, the lord of the air which uh in his later works he admits is the devil or you know the lucifer Uh, he admits that in magic and theory and practice but um so that kind of solidifies himself as the kind of uh, what he what he's always really striving for was to be the top of kind of the occult hierarchy which i think he kind of attained when he became a head of the german uh secret society the order of temple Order Templi Orientis in 1925, he became the head, kind of integrated his ideas into that. But uh, he really left this kind of like repository of magical practices, of rituals, and uh, really pushed forward kind of occultism for so almost almost all occultists of whatever stripe you've heard of, whether it's Anton LaVey, Michael Aquino, the head of the Order of Nine Angles, Myatt, um, so many of these other characters, they've all looked back and had a Crowley kind of uh, a legacy or, or uh, heritage in all of their work. Whether they how much of him they accepted or rejected is another story, but uh, he really was still an influence upon all these occultists. It is remarkable.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, man, that was a really good synopsis of the life of Crowley, and there's so much to. Uh... To dive into there, one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was, uh, you know, when I was, I talked about how the first episode of this show I did was about Alfred Kinsey, and you talked about how Crowley would write for these publications like The Fatherland and some of these pro-German propaganda rags, which was ran by this guy named George Sylvester Virick, and that is one of the connections that I saw between Crowley and Alfred Kinsey, because Kinsey would actually have correspondence with George Sylvester Virick. And so I tried really hard to see if it was uh, possible that Kinsey and Crowley ever had some sort of direct correspondence with one another, which I could not find. But I think it's interesting that, you know, they're kind of a, a degree of Kevin Bacon or however you want to right. phrase it away from one another. Um, well, it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting you bring up Vireck
1: because there is a tie between Crowley, Vireck, and Hitler. So Vireck was half German, half American, and he was definitely an asset at that time, the interwar period of you know Germany. But one of the earliest interviews of Hitler was done by George Sylvester Vireck in 1924. So it is pretty fascinating that. Uh, there is this kind of overlap between him and Crowley. There, there's other overlaps, very disconcerting overlaps between Crowley and Hitler. And uh, Crowley uh, infamously said, after the war, before Hitler was, I am pretty... pretty
0: yeah, typical uh, sacrilege coming coming from Crowley. Um, so... Yeah, you unpacked so much there in your description of Crowley, and something that I thought was interesting when I was reading through your book is that while Crowley's uh, interest in the occult and magic and stuff would be something that would continue um, throughout his life, I mean, you can even see early on, you discussed a little bit about being raised in the Plymouth Brethren and this kind of strict Christian environment—not um, necessarily the type of—I mean, I, I am a Christian, you know—not the type of uh, Christian Christian environment that I would, you know, uh, like a, a child to be raised in, per, perhaps. But um, you know, he uh, something that he would say is that very early on is that his interest when he would be reading the Bible and stuff was. Not in, you know, God or or anything like that, but that he always kind of, you know, uh, the the demonic and the devil is what would interest him in these writings and how he would, you know, sacrifice the cat and his botched uh, attempt at making an explosive. Um, So, I mean, very early on, you see with Crowley that he has this, you know, kind of interest in all things that are... um, dark and demonic. But when do you really think that Crowley began to um, truly become enmeshed in the occult and really start to dive deep into those types of studies?
1: I mean, I think it really was his time in Cambridge where he just had time to read and things like that. I think he was, uh, his first book was this Eckhart Eckhart Hausen book called spirit of the clouds or so i can't remember the title of it but that's what kind of led him on and he heard he read about what he says in in his confessions his biography that he heard of a secret group and that's what intrigued him and he was like you said he was intrigued by the book of revelation that's what he liked so he liked the imagery of the beast and the scarlet woman and he actually integrated those ideas in this kind of satanic version of revelation where he made this ritual, you know, where, like, the the woman rides the beast, right? So the Scarlet Woman rides the beast. He actually made this ritual that is, it's actually, you can see a reenactment of it at the end of Roman Polanski's Ninth Gate. So you have to kind of be an initiate or understand Crowley to know what's happening, but it's really incredible that that's just another kind of uh, influence of Crowley upon the stuff, and that's Johnny Depp and Polanski's wife are reenacting this ritual, but yeah. He, uh, that's where he really started. He was, was pretty young. I think he got got out of Cambridge at 22 or 23 and really that's when his determination was, is really to be a big wig in the occult. So he just really, I mean, I think that he was a unique, I've called him a perfect storm of a character because he didn't ever have to work. He had family money. He was a totally elitist. I don't think he ever changed his ideas of aristocratic kind of, you know, uh, strength, like that the, 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 he would say the best kind of, uh, social structure is feudalism. That was his ideal. And I think that that kind of uh, mentality is actually bled over into the U S aristocracy as well today. I think they have a lot of curly fingers, if not they're outright, if they're outright, not just thelemites, they just haven't been exposed. But, uh, yeah, I think that that's he. He started very young, and I think he just read whatever he could and, and absorbed a lot of that early stuff from the Golden Dawn.
0: Absolutely. And he went through. Actually,
1: he went through. Yeah, he went through the top of the Golden Dawn is a post Masonic group, so you would have to go through the thirty three degrees of masonry. And at a certain point, he said, like he kind of he, he said, and I think it's in "Profit of Evil" that he had so much regalia and so many honorifics. From so many different organizations it would bury an elephant something like that
0: yes yes i recall reading that um as i was reading through prophet of evil this past week but yeah it is that is all very interesting and so we have him he's consuming all the literature that he can he's very well read he's also a poet um not a poet that I, I care for too much. He's awfully verbose. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. so. It never captured. His poetry never really captured
1: on into the public mind. I don't think that he ever had what he really wanted, which was some kind of uh, reputation as a poet. And maybe his followers liked his poetry. I know Parsons, Jack Parsons, when they would do rocket launches, he would recite probably. Crowley's most famous poem, which is "Hymn to Pan," but uh, yeah, he ne- but he put out tons of poetry. He put out all kinds of perverse poetry, um, erotic poetry, all kinds of stuff. But he was never that kind of rewriter of anything, really. So he never went back and kind of perfected maybe some of his poems to make them more palatable to the public or anything. He was just to write and finish and just be done and move forward. But uh, yeah. He was yeah, he never I, really. You know, although there actually was actually it was a, a Chesterton. There's a famous thing from uh, in *Prophet of Evil* where he read some of Crowley's stuff and said, "Oh, this guy'll be good. He's a good poet." But uh,
0: yeah. I found that very interesting that G.K. Chesterton, um, you know, this famous Christian writer, would kind of uh, you know lend credence to him when I mean I, I personally just don't even find Crowley's prose to be very good. Not that I've read as much Crowley as you. I've read snippets of a lot of his book, but the only book that I've read in full is the Book of the Law. But maybe we can also break that down a little bit more because I read the Book of the Law and, you know, you mentioned how Crowley has this very a elitist, aristocratic view, and that's something that I find amongst all these different occult groups, and I think that's what makes it partially so appealing to those in the elite, is it kind of creates this justification as to why they're better than everybody else, why they should be able to subjugate everybody else to their will, and what have you. It's also what you know makes eugenics and all these different things so interesting to these elite groups. But... Let's talk a little bit because, you know, the Book of the Law and his, you know, communication with Rose Kelly, with Iwas and all these things is really when you begin to see his, you know, his worldview turn into his own religion. So could you talk a little bit about what exactly is Thelema? What exactly was it that Crowley believed? Because there's so much, you know, confusion as to, you know, what it is that is truly the beliefs of Thelema. And I don't even think a lot of people who practice Thelema truly know where it is that their belief system kind of comes from with IWAS in, in these different things. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that he
1: was learning and uh, increasing his knowledge as he went through. I think he wanted to be the greatest kind of magician, or magician, or however you want to spell it, in history. So he was into ceremonial magic, drugs, and involvement of sex in, in these rituals. So I think that that was really kind of his religion. He always was railing against Jesus Christ. He called Jesus Christ the world's tragedy. That's what he was referencing when he wrote the play, The World's Tragedy, right, about uh, the death of Christ and him taking his place as the new Messiah, right? So he becomes, uh, in that play, this kind of taking the place of Christ. So I think that his antipathy for Christianity is a very important component of his religion. You can see the cross of the frog ritual. I just posted a picture of that on my my Twitter, um, where he's basically mocking Christ and using a frog as part of this ritual where you're literally supposed to nail a living frog to a cross and bury it for three days and then mock it. Um, so I think that that's kind of conveniently overlooked or unemphasized by people who admire Crowley. So in the place he was going to create his own religion, he called it Crowleanity. I think he was determined to do that at a fairly young age in his twenties. And that Crowleanity was going to be a mix of all of his writings and his, uh, mystical experiences, and the Book of the Law, which was the centerpiece. And what he did is created these kind of new rituals. He actually had been to Russia. He had seen Orthodox Christian churches, and he, he basically lifted a lot of his symbolism from the Orthodox Church. So you'll see these candles and the whole uh, layouts of this kind of ritual environment. But uh, I think that was really it. He was going to create the birth of the child, this idea that I talked about. The birth of Horus, which is going to be this new aeonic change, just like Hitler. Hitler had aeonic change. He wanted to create a thousand-year Reich. Uh, he only lasted 12 years. But Crowley was going to create this new magical aeon, kind of like bringing back the old gods, the household gods of Egypt, and overthrow Christianity. So I think that that was part of his religion. And then, like I said, like he integrated all of these rituals and um, the Book of the Law and its concepts into what he called thelema right so thelema is a greek word it means will and that's why he got the word thelema or thelema and that was actually a statement within the book of the law and there's other references to the number 11 in the book of the law but uh thelema in his gematria right so he was in he liked the kabbalah and in the uh, thelema breaks down kabbalistically in english to 93 as does agape right so the word for love so you'll see his kind of statement, love is the law, love under will. And he, I think that he had that kind of satanic view of the human will, where your will is more important. So uh, it's not the Lord's Prayer where you say, thy will be done. It's his will, and the human will is paramount. Something he had in common with Hitler, right? Triumph of the will. Um, so you see these kind of overlaps between Crowley and Hitler that are a bit unnerving, which is why I included Adolf Hitler in Children of the Beast. But um, I think that that was really his goal. And all the way to the end, people thought he was a dabbler or a faker, but even like uh, this guy who was supposedly his heir, McMurtry, uh, went and visited him in London, and, I mean, in England. Uh, he was there because of World War II. And Crowley was still spinning fire against carolers and maintaining his uh, religious regimen. And he was actually writing this kind of Magic Without Tears, what became a book called Magic Without Tears, which were his correspondences with other curious occultists. So I think that he was really dedicated to the end. that was actually his, uh, his magical name was Perdurabo. There's actually a, a book by another Thelemite titled Perdurabo. But that word means I will endure to the end. So that was his magical name. Um, and I think that he kept to it all the way to the end, his rebellion against God and uh, the, the desire to kind of create this new religion was uh, there all the way to, you know, I think it benefited him as well. So it's fulfilled his kind of worldly desires. He became this kind of uh, got fame, fortune and women uh, and men out of out of his role as that. So I think that it wasn't totally selfless. I think is uh, yeah. So.
0: Absolutely, yeah. When I was reading your book, and this is something because I I knew a, a decent deal, but I learned so much from um, Prophet of Evil and your other work on on Crowley about him. But something that I found particularly troubling is because, um, as I said, I'm a Christian and and I actually am Orthodox, so I thought that it was very interesting that he would take the liturgy of Saint Basil and do this kind of inversion of it in order um, to create his Gnostic mass that he would um, come up with. And I think something that that really highlighted for me when I was reading that is that not just with Crowley, but it's, you know, abundantly clear with him, but with a lot of these um, occult sects is that um, they... Their only ability really is to invert what is good and to turn it completely on its head. And there's really no creative power with them. But it's only their ability to invert what is good, what is right, and to make a mockery of it. So I thought that that was kind of uh, a perfect illustration of kind of what Crowley's whole magical work seems seems to do you know is to make a mockery of what of what is good and that there's really you know no true creative power in it i mean it's kind of like evil is the the absence of of what it what is good if that makes any sense it makes perfect sense
1: and i think that that was it i can't remember the direct quote but like his power was in transgression so everything is about transgression to get gain power. So the debasement of others and the self is a, is a way to obtain power. Like So you uh, do horrible things. Like, I mean, the stuff about his bodily fluids and all this other stuff is a form of transgression all the time. And just to quote what I was saying before, eventually he, he admitted who A was, and this is from Magic and Theory and Practice. He says, the, he called himself the Beast 666. So the Beast 666 has preferred to let names stand as they are and to proclaim simply that Awaz, the solar phallic hermetic Lucifer, is his own holy guardian angel and the devil, Satan, or Hadit of our particular unit of the starry universe. This serpent, Satan, is not the enemy of man, but he who made gods of our race, knowing good and evil. He bade know thyself and taught initiation. He is the devil of the book of Thoth, and his emblem is Baphomet. The Androgyne, who's the hieroglyph of arcane perfection. So I think he pretty much lays out who he thinks granted him this book, Book of the Law.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that quote is so damaging to um, a lot of people who are followers or sympathetic to Crowley, you know, because a lot of them, it seems like, to try and almost completely despiritualize his work and that, you know, this is all just kind of like this rich psychodrama that, you know, helps one to help conform things to 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 one's will. And, you know, we I, I mentioned how, you know, his mockery of the, you know, Orthodox liturgy is kind of an inversion is what is good. You talked about how, you know, instead of the Lord's Prayer, let thy will be done, it's let you know my will be done in the worldview. Of Aleister Crowley. And so something that I would be interested to know your opinion on is a lot of these spiritual experiences that he claimed to encounter. And I'm, I would love for you to you know, talk more about that. You've already talked about Iwas, but there's also when he would go out into the desert with Victor Newberg in the Sahara, and there would be his experience with the demon Karonzin, if I'm pronouncing that correct. But Do you think that these tales are something that Crowley is making up because he has this super inflated ego? He wants everybody to think that he's super magical. Or do you believe that he was truly in communion with demons and the demonic and that he's relaying the truth, or at least mostly the truth, in a lot of these tales of his?
1: I would say mostly the truth. I think that he coveted this kind of connection. He was always trying to talk to these beings and write them down kind of like some, like John D. or something, like relate this information. And that whole ritual that he did with Newberg in the desert, Algerian desert at uh, Busada, which was an oasis, was, they they were doing the aethers of John D. and Kelly, right? So that was what they were referencing, this demon corns. Whether that showed up or not, I don't know, but I think that some of the proof is actually this picture of lamb that uh, I mentioned before, that is really the core you know, uh, visual thing for all this UFO stuff going all the way back to what communion and all this other stuff is this weird looking gray alien that Crowley wrote about. So either that's just based upon a lie founded, founded by Crowley, or people are actually seeing these entities Is another story, but those weren't the only beings that or he said he was in communion with. So it wasn't just Awas or the Alamantra working or lamb. There was another guy he called the magician, who he's communicating with. And that was what happened, what, uh, what led to him founding the, the Abbey of Thelema, right? The Abbey of the Will. So I think that his recordings and his astral travels as well. So he's traveling around and drawing stuff about his astral travels and supposedly communicating with people from other parts of the world through astral travel. Um, I do think that that's what he was trying to do, whether he, you know, engaged in kind of wholesale uh, faking it i mean you can kind of you can actually go back to the original copies of the book of the law it's clearly automatic writing he's not using drafts or anything like that there are some a few emendations made in the text but not very much but that was actually kind of similar to all of his writing so I think that he was definitely, like you said, trying to impress upon people that he was the guy in kind of communication. He also also like wrote. You can read this in Children of the Beast that like this is the stuff given to me, the Book of the Log. It was given to me, and I am its prophet, right? So it's not like some kind of uh, this is egalitarian sensibility. This is what was done. I am the prophet of uh, Awas. So he definitely was uh, definitely was trying to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, and I think you make a good point. When some of this stuff about Crowley really uh, goes in the face, this whole thing about AWAS and the, who is Lucifer and the Satan, I think it really breaks up a lot of these guys who are talking about Crowley and these kind of positive or that he's superficial or that he's not a Satanist or anything like that. I think that this is one of the things you want to break out. Also, the, like some of the stuff that is not even in children uh, – it's not even Prophet of Evil, where he writes in The Magical Record of the Beast about, like, like really gnarly pedophilia stuff um, that he admits to with uh, his girlfriend at the time, his Scarlet Woman at the time. And that, so a lot of that stuff is left out in, like, the branding of his Scarlet Women, but where he literally, like, had a brand of the Mark of the Beast and put it on their chest. And uh, so, and- you know, they
0: overlooked. A lot of the darker stuff, the blood drinking and the bodily fluid stuff. And animal sacrifice with goats and cats and an attempt at, uh, you know, having one of his scarlet women um, try to get a goat to copulate with them and then sacrifice the goat. And, yeah, when you look at the the people who are uh, proponents or sympathetic to Crowley, they try and divorce a lot of who he was as a person from, you know, their belief system, when really so many of their beliefs are directly attributable to Crowley. So, I mean, you can even tell with some of these people who are sympathetic to him or his beliefs that they uh, are, are kind of trying to do this revisionist history where they divorce who he was as a man from you know the 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 belief systems that undergird their their worldview you know and I think it you know kind of goes back uh, that you, you will know them by their fruits and uh Crowley's fruits were definitely rotten into the core. And so something that I am curious about um and uh I you know I think that it'd be uh helpful for the listeners to kind of do this is um, could you talk a little bit about how Crowley would, you know, he was this trust fund kid and this elitist who comes from this wealthy family and enabled him to take on this life of pursuing magic, but himself and pretty much everybody around him would end up destitute, insane, there's all these strange deaths in relation to him, and I think it's just another thing that goes to illustrate who Crowley was and what this kind of worldview ultimately leads to, because these people who get interested in magic, it's to make things to conform to their will and to achieve, you know, whether it be sex, money, power, all these worldly pleasures. But did that really end up working in the the grand scheme for these people? Good question. Maybe
1: some of his followers after his life, maybe some of the stuff he did garnered, benefits to them but for him he ended up kind of penniless relying on his followers to survive and maintain his heroin habit he probably worked through his parents money by the time he was 50 so he had some very hard decades after that he even admitted that he just casually spent money but he inherited after his mother died something i think it was like the equivalent of like 20 million american dollars it was a significant amount of money but he blew it uh, just on high living and uh, not, not really ever working. I can think he made a little bit of money from his kind of self-publishing things, but never really had anything, but any, any real income. But he, I think from the very beginning, all the people surrounding him, just like you said, went insane or something. Like his first wife who was with him, uh, Rose Kelly, at the time of the Book of the Law, she eventually drank herself into kind of a mental institution, so that wasn't good. Um, then uh, his other paramour, her name was Leah Herzig. This is the one he branded. He like left her for another woman, just like that, and she ended up being a prostitute in Paris to survive. Like really rough. Like the before and after pictures of Leah Herzig or something else. She looked like this kind of pretty young girl, and then by the time she was done with Crowley, she looked just drained of energy, very like uh, like a haunted look. She looked like she was haunted. And uh, one guy, he said, for the benefit of this, you know, the great work, take out a life insurance policy and then kill yourself so I can have the money. He literally said this to a guy. His name is easy to remember. It's M-U-D-D. And uh, that guy had some kind of weird thing. He couldn't get Crowley out of his life. And he eventually uh, filled his pants full of rocks and drowned himself, I think in the Mediterranean or something like that. So yeah the 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 and his children too ended up terrible. There was like he became the father of a child late in his life his name was his child's name was Ataturk Crowley and you can look him up his pictures are still online. He ended up kind of trying to emulate Crowley, but he ended up on a park bench as like a like a skitzed out schizophrenic kind of a homeless guy, and his kids just didn't work you know they didn't uh They didn't end up well or denied they knew him, but uh, he had five children. And I think one of the girls, he said, oh, yeah, she'll make a nice little whore. Like, that's what he said about his own child. So I think that everything around his personal life uh, ended up corrupted and degraded and ugly. But um,
0: And was it Victor Newberg or maybe it wasn't him, but there was. um, Go ahead.
1: No, you're right. Victor Newberg was shattered. So his lifetime with Crowley, he ended up kind of having a nervous breakdown and was never the same man after uh, meeting Crowley. So you can just, like, the list goes on and on. Yeah, Uh, The other guy who died at the Abbey, the guy who died at the Abbey, his name was um, Raul Loveday. So he met Crowley and died at the Abbey, and that was talked about by Tiger Woman, this woman's name. Her name was Betty May. That's also another story that's conveniently left out by all the Crowley admirers is uh, Betty May's very telling first-person account of being with Crowley at the Abbey of Philema, and It's in, in the book Tiger Woman.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, it, maybe it was Newberg or someone else, but his girlfriend killed herself after they got in an argument, and he told her to go ahead and do it, thinking that she wouldn't, and then she did, and he was, you know, so paranoid from his days with you know, Crowley, that he thought that he must have had something to do do with this and, you know, had a hold over him for the, the rest of his life. So that's something that really stood out to me as I was reading through this is how pretty much everybody who, um, he, he one of his children would end up uh, dying uh, sick from spending time at the Abbey uh, Thelema, I, I believe, or, or something like that. So, I mean, really pretty much everybody who came into personal contact with him, you know, their, their lives seem to be shattered. And he even, um, would say later on in life to someone, something to the event of, you know, uh, you know, be careful because all of my enemies, you know, either end up in the ground or in the insane asylum or, or something like that. So, I mean, it seems like he was, um, you know, somewhat aware uh, of this and even despite his huge ego, he began to wonder at, at his more cognizant times towards the end of his life, you know whether or not his whole life was a a mistake, you know, which is, for such an egotistical guy, is um, an interesting thought to have. But anyways, I think that we've done a pretty good job at summarizing the life of Crowley. And so maybe the place to go to next is just kind of all the the, the people who would become influenced by Crowley afterwards. And perhaps we can start with um, a couple of people who would become other big names in the occult, uh, such as uh, Gerald Gardner and and Kenneth Grant and all these other, you know, kind of the next generation of magicians who would um, take a lot from Crowley, if you'd like to discuss that. Absolutely.
1: But before the direct quote, he was with a guy by the name of Lance, or Lancelot Steve King, in the south of France, and he told them, this is a direct quote, if you want to find the men who have crossed my path, the men who have wronged me, you have but three places in which to look. The jail, the madhouse, and the grave. Yeah, so he's proud of that. But yeah, so like uh, Gerald Gardner became kind of the head of like the two main, main prongs of Wicca, right? Gardnerian and Alexandrian. The other one's Alexander Sanders. That's my understanding. Is the understanding is that those are the two things. But a lot of people don't know that Gerald Gardner had a connection to Crowley. And had a signed kind of uh, a document or, or a cult a document granting him some kind of benefit of knowing Crowley. And he actually, my understanding is Gardner used some of the rituals from Crowley in his kind of makeup of Wicca. Uh, which people claim, you know, goes back thousands of years or whatever. There's not a lot of evidence of that. I Probably the ideas may go back thousands of years. But, yeah, there's no doubt that Crowley influenced Gardner and they were in communication actually met and then kenneth grant kind of started this guy uh kenneth grant lived with crowley and then started his own kind of branching off from crowley which had kind of i think a ufo influence is my understanding but uh yeah kenneth grant wrote like nine books i think one was called ninth gate or something like that i haven't read through all of his stuff but he became kind of this uh influential uh person you know after crowley but yeah it just goes on and on like the amount of people that crowley was in connection with or knew like john tom dryberg people in the uk know this guy very well he would be like the head of like the dnc at one point but he was supposed to be crowley's heir actually and uh he dryberg was friends with like the cray twins who were kind of famous notorious gangsters in london and uh Yeah, just really kind of interesting. Gerald York was a disciple, and the biggest repository of Crowley's work is called the York Collection. It's in London. But uh, also connections to Ian Fleming, Dennis Wheatley, who's really the Stephen King of his generation, who was a well-known kind of writer who wrote The Devil Rides Out, which became a movie with the character based on Crowley. Um, But, yeah, I mean, just really crazy stuff. Also kind of like you mentioned Kinsey. So Kinsey was knowledgeable. Uh, of crowley but an interesting connection to kinsey is one of the people who did so-called quote research with kinsey unquote uh was a guy by the name of uh kenneth anger who just passed away last month um he was like uh a known kind of early uh cinema creator but also defined himself as a warlock who was very much uh, influenced by crowley and he, he said all of his cinema was like a magical act And the interesting thing about Anger is that he was connected to so many celebrities and stars, even up to today, like he, uh, up to when he died, like there's some famous guys, but he knew like the Manson family lived, literally lived with uh, Bobby Buzole, who was, uh, went to jail, but was part of the Manson family.
0: But yeah, yeah. I mean, just the connection. And and Jimmy Page was initially going to do the soundtrack for Lucifer Rising, Um, Kenneth Anger's movie, if I'm correct.
1: That's absolutely correct. And he knew Paige, too, and lived with Paige, Anger did. So there's a connection there. Paige was probably the wealthiest of the Crowley admirers, collected all of, was actually kind of a competitor with Anger in purchasing all of Crowley's old kind of books and regalia. But, uh, yeah, they lived together, and then they fell out, and Anger supposedly, you know, made a curse against Paige, I don't know if it came to anything but yeah uh uh, anger is a very interesting guy connecting all these things manson i mean he was uh the argument is manson was part of an oto or crowley group in la called the solar temple and i think there's pretty good evidence that he knew all that stuff and was influenced by people who knew knew crowley stuff the uh this group called the process church of the final judgment so
0: Yes, and I've done some episodes on the on the Process Church and uh, Timothy Wiley and on all those guys and some of their you know connections possibly to the the Manson family and and, and what have you. So all very interesting. But something that I thought that was a uh, you know kind of uh, that is really great about your work in Children of the Beast is that a lot of the times, especially with like someone like um, Gerald Gardner, you know, because people try to make this distinction between white and black magic and a lot of the times wicca is seen by a lot of people as kind of this harmless thing it's white magic it's it's really just earth worship and so it's really telling that when you see that gerald gardner really took a lot of his beliefs and lifted a lot of his stuff from from crowley which i think goes a little bit of a ways to you know dismantle this idea that you know uh the occult kind of has this light side to it i mean i'm certainly there are things that are uh you know, much more troubling in the occult when, especially when you get, you know, to the uh, human sacrifice or, you know, the the much crazier ends of it. But um, I, I, I appreciated that about your work that, you know, talking about someone like him goes a little bit of a ways towards dismantling this idea, you know, that, oh, you know, there's there's the people who just kind of like to get together in groups and hold hands and, you know, worship the earth and the moon and and the sun and that it's kind of this harmless thing as opposed to you know the 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 big bad people like crowley when you figure out that you know Gardner lifted a lot of his stuff from none other than crowley
1: no doubt yeah it is remarkable people overlook that and i think it's part of the kind of whitewash too like there's white magic and there's dark magic i would say all magic is dark in the sense that you are using yourself as kind of like this uh you know this you're the center of the universe and you're putting everything in your own will and stuff like that it's very selfish and uh so i think that this that whole like oh he's a white magician is a bunch of non- nonsense and i think it's just for public consumption but yeah anger was actually a part he was friends with Levey. anger was uh, seen with tim burton james uh franco like all these modern they did a song together so he he actually goes all the way back from kinsey to some of these modern artists that are all over the place really incredible
0: it somehow managed to slip my radar that kenneth anger died just a month ago but yeah he uh is truly a, a bizarre and fascinating character I think that I might be talking with the Subliminal Jihad podcast guys soon and they did a really good episode on Kenneth Anger and some of his film and stuff like that uh, a while ago so I'd recommend people go check that out if they want to learn more about um Kenneth Anger but I mean yeah and and he had such a a large influence on kind of avant-garde art house film and stuff like that and you talk about some other people in children of the beast in the in the film industry another one of these guys who is kind of like an avant-garde film guy is uh alejandro jorodowski who is um another guy who would be influenced by uh crowley and right. in his work so um have you ever seen the famous picture of anger
1: Yodorowski, dennis hopper and donald camel together but I, have they, I not. mean that it's very telling. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting picture because it puts them all together, I think, in the early 70s, but it's like it shows you the avant-garde, which today may may involve like Abramovich. These people are all influenced by the occult. And Yodorowsky definitely knows Crowley. I have a picture of him in there with Crowley's uh the equinox, uh his Crowley's attempt at putting together an encyclopedia. But Donald Camel being with anger is really telling because Camel wrote this movie, the performance of UK's top 100 movies of all time featuring Mick Jagger. But Camel actually sat on the lap of Aleister Crowley because his dad was good friends with him. His dad actually wrote a biography about, um, Crowley. And so this Campbell has this, uh, uh, connection, very close connection. And then kind of made all these kind of occult movies. But, uh, and was friends with who was he friends with, just some other people in um, who was the who was Kurt in in um, Apocalypse Now? What was that guy's name? Uh, Bald uh, guy. Was it uh, Brando or is one yeah. of the Marlon Brando? Camel's best friend was Marlon Brando. So these guys are like connected. And they actually wrote a, mo- uh, a screenplay together that never got produced. But Camel didn't have. Didn't attain the fame that he really wanted.
0: Wow, but he was that's actually it Interesting.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. He was in a movie. I can't remember the name of it, but it was with Anne Hache. Anne Hache was one of the stars, and she just died in some kind of weird car crash in L.A. this year. And uh, I mean, God only knows what the background of those people were. And uh, Christopher Christopher Walken and Anne Hache were in some kind of weird underground movie together, directed
0: by Donald Campbell. Wow, yeah, man, yeah, what a absolutely. what a web of of people. And and you mentioned Dennis Hopper. Um, I might be wrong, but wasn't Dennis Hopper uh, reported in uh, the the book The Family? And uh, I think it's also talked about a little bit in Tom O'Neill's Chaos to have been at the Polanski home when the drug dealer would be uh, whipped on film, apparently. Um, Wasn't he one of the people who was supposedly there when that happened? And so there's just kind of another, you know, he's hanging out with uh, Jorodowski and, you know, all all these other characters who are into Crowley. And then you would say of Polanski in his movie The Ninth Gate, which I haven't seen that. But I'm going to add that to the list now that the uh, ritual that takes place towards the end is, you know, based off a Crowley ritual.
1: Right. The beast rides the woman, the scarlet woman. The woman rides the beast. she rides the beast. The beast is Johnny Depp. Right? A huge And then Johnny uh, Depp is up. connected
0: to Damien Eccles. Yeah, exactly. So um if you want we could talk a little bit about Damien Eccles. I think that that would be a good thing to do because we've uh you know talked about Eccles in the past in your book on the West Memphis 3 and uh you know so uh, and, and for those of you anyways I'll, I'll let you go on about that when did we talk about that did we talk about that before he
1: was on the tim pool show or after i don't remember
0: it was right after he was on the tim pool show but i'm not sure if we ended up mentioning that in in the interview so i i'm, I'm sure that everyone even if they had heard it you know wouldn't mind hearing about it again see it again yeah
1: well he was on the tim pool show damian Eccles. And he says at the end, the, most, the two most influential people on his life are Alistair Crowley and uh, Joe Olstein, which is really strange, as Olstein is kind of like the uh, online television, televangelist. But I think it's very telling. So you can just see this kind of current, I think the occultist would call it like an occult current going from Crowley to Polanski to Depp to Eccles, uh, still promoting this kind of stuff. I mean, it's really incredible. And Tim Pool is like, a, he has an incredible reach. I think he has a lot of listeners. A lot of people listen to that show. But uh, yeah, Absolutely. there was a lot of. Yeah.
0: Am I wrong? But is it And then after
1: the, the boys' death. Excuse go me, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the death that took place in 1993 had this, the trappings of some kind of ritual event weird tyings, weird knots. They found wax there, blue wax. It was on a full moon. I think it was in bulk or some high and holy day. Very druidic. Bodies were buried in in uh, water, so a lot of weird stuff drowned in water.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I got a question I want to come back to, but just real quick: Is Joel Osteen one of these people who's into prosperity gospel? I think so. I think he is. Because I just had the thought when. Um, I didn't think about this the first time that you told me about that and told me to go check out the Tim Pool interview, but there is kind of a, I guess, an interesting link that you could make, and maybe it makes more sense that he would say that those people influence him the most off the top of his head, because if Osteen is into prosperity gospel, um, which I personally think um, is not something that aligns with the the real gospel, because I mean, you look at you know Jesus Christ, and I mean. ended up being crucified and you look at the disciples and they ended up dying, you know, for for their beliefs. And then you also have other people, you know, like, you know, Stephen, who was the first martyr and all this stuff in the Bible. So it doesn't really correspond with my understanding of, you know what I mean? I mean, if if you truly, you know, pick up your cross and carry it, you you know, you you might have to suffer in in, in this world um, because of your beliefs. But, you know, with the prosperity gospel and then with something like Crowley, this idea of conforming the world to your will so that way you can get the things that you want, where, you know, with prosperity gospel, it's, you know, if you do, you know, the right thing or, or you, know, you know, you're a good believer that you'll acquire all this worldly wealth and, and status and stuff like that. So you kind of could make a correlation between the two, I suppose.
1: I think you can. And to be uh, he's very wealthy. I think uh, this guy's worth uh, tens of millions of dollars, Osteen is. And so it's like you give and you get back. I don't think I've ever heard that in anywhere. I've read that in any of the uh, scriptures either. But one of my favorite Osteen book titles is, this is true, book title is, You Can, You Will, Eight Undeniable Qualities of a Winner, 2014 so he's literally wow. like invoking like, the power of the will it's not god's will and if you go back and read the, the scriptures i'm sure you have but it's like if the world hated me what is the, what do you think it's going to be about you and they like, christ never promised people like uh, this kind of idea of happiness he gave he said you'd have life in abundance which is very different but um the standard was different but he said like you expect persecution
0: uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and I mean he told the, the, the disciples to, to to give up their worldly possessions and and to follow him and to, you know, rely on on the church to provide what it is that they need in order to to carry out his work. Um and so um all all very interesting. But yeah, um but anyways, I mean you were talking about, you know, Damien Eccles and how the uh death of these three little boys um you know, bared the signs of some ritualistic type practices, whether you're talking about the the, the wax, the, the way that they were tied up, all of these different things. Um, and something that I've seen, and I have actually think I've seen you get into Twitter arguments with some kind of Crowley and occult type people about this, but is the idea that crowley does in his own writings maybe it was magic in theory and practice or magic without tears one of those he creates a a justification for human sacrifice or if, if not a justification i mean he talks about the most efficacious sacrifice so maybe if you can talk a little bit about that because i think a lot of people you know think that uh with, with with Crowley, the idea of human sacrifice or something like that is, you know, something that is you know foreign uh, uh, to to that kind of belief system, you know. Um, but it's really not. Right. It's not. It's there, and through a lot of his stuff, he explains it in magic and theory
1: and practice. He goes into detail about energies and uh, where the best energy is, and animals and the the history of sacrifice. And things like that so he goes through and and talks about that in detail in magic and theory and practice but his references to human sacrifice are not limited to that magical book because there's actually references in some of his um, rituals so one is Liber 77 where he talks about killing a child and the the blood will, will cover The altar as of wine or something like that i don't remember it exactly but then he also references child sacrifice in the world's tragedy so it's interspersed throughout his works and they the crowley and these are just the public works i don't know what it hasn't been published and what's in there and what's spread around just by these occult groups but the stuff that's made it into the public it's evident that it's it's there's a theme in his work i wrote an article about it you can go to my website i think it's cruelly in human sacrifice but yeah that i really uh made some thelemites very angry i think they're just generally angry at me in general but uh um yeah so it's there it's definitely in his stuff and it, i mean we can do blood and all that stuff the blood rituals and things like that it just goes on and on
0: yeah yeah absolutely and like you know, I mean, there's kind of the, I mean, you you look at the Abrahamic covenant and, you know, it says, uh, you know, not to eat the blood of an animal. And there was this idea in the ancient world that the blood is what holds the life force and the life of a creature. And this is something that exists in occult practices going way back. And that's why you see blood which is constantly used is because it's believed to, you know, have this life force, these energies. You know, and Crowley talked about the most efficacious sacrifices to, you know, harness these energies, and, and that's where the blood comes from. And something that a lot of these, you know, pro Crowley people like to say is, I don't know what quote they're referring to, but that when he's talking about human sacrifice, that this is a, you know, a, a veiled reference to masturbation and how semen is used in a lot of these practices. But, I mean, that's another thing where, I mean, even if that, you know, were to be the case, which, I mean, I don't think it is what Crowley was talking about, but, I mean, it's it's another one of these things that, you know, holds this, this life force in, inside of it, and you see semen being used in all these different types of occult practices. And so, I mean, it would make sense from the occult, mindset that you know um the most pure type of of sacrifice and and its blood or to to take its life is the way to harness the the most power and i mean even if listeners of the show you know don't believe that that's that's true what matters is that there are people who believe that that's true Right, exactly.
1: This is from the Chapter 12, Magic and Theory and Practice, of the Bloody Sacrifice and Matters Cognite. In any case, it was the theory of the ancient magicians that any living being is a storehouse of energy, varying in quantity according to the size and health of the animal, and in quality according to its mental and moral character. At the death of the animal, this energy is liberated suddenly. For the highest spiritual working, one must accordingly choose that victim which contains the greatest and purest force a male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most suitable sacrifice so that's in his writing
0: yeah and and that is an idea that tracks back throughout human history and a lot of the times especially in the ancient world if you look at these types of rituals now uh, like w- with the greeks and 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 some of these other people they they did start to get this idea that that's kind of a barbaric way to go about sacrifice and that you should just sacrifice animals to the gods or whatever. But there always have been people who took it that extra level and, uh, you know, the sacrifice of, you know, um, people, has happened and in the ancient world the idea of sacrifice was typically always also associated you would sacrifice an animal to the gods and consume it and unfortunately in in human history that there were people who applied that to two people you know so um i mean it, it's certainly far out there and it, and it is something that can be hard to to believe but there have been people throughout history who did believe it and 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 that's what they did so no, doubt. It's all in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It was in the um,
1: empire that the Romans fought, the old uh, Carthaginian empire had blood sacrifice in the Aztecs. This is all knowledge. They would take somebody up there and cut them open real fast. So, this is all blood sacrifice. It, exists, it existed.
0: Yeah. You know. And Crowley was very interested in lifting all these different ideas from all these different pagan religions and other ancient mystery cults and stuff like that and incorporating aspects of that into his own practice. So I mean now whether Crowley ever you know sacrificed a a human life in any form or something like that I mean we don't necessarily have that information but the idea that this is um, something that would be kind of uh, uh, foreign to this type of worldview I mean I don't think that there's, you know, any feasible way to to deny that, at least in my reading. Right. But there are a couple other people who were heavily The rumors in- the rumors were there though. Yeah, the rumors of
1: Crowley sacrificing babies was there around that time. There are rumors. There's no evidence. yet.
0: Yes, and and you include newspaper clippings and other stuff like that in Prophet of Evil. That you know show that these rumors were there at the time, and you know while Crowley would deny this, I mean I think that most people who would be accused of human sacrifice aren't going to just come out and say, "Oh yeah, I I, I sacrifice people." <laughs> but um, so there are some other interesting characters who took heavy influence from Crowley, and. Um, So maybe we can go through a couple of those. And something that I've thought about doing a show on at some point, because I think it's very interesting, is Scientology and how a lot of the practices and beliefs of Scientology are kind of lifted from different occult groups. And you talk about how L. Ron Hubbard was interested in the works of Crowley and Children of the Beast and, you know, with him and, and Jack Parsons. So if you wouldn't mind informing our listeners about that.
1: Yeah, it goes back to Hubbard kind of linking up with Parsons in L.A. That was kind of the place where a lot of science fiction writers went to. And Hubbard was part of that bigger group, but it was the Agape Lodge. Crowley thought the Agape Lodge was the most important outpost of his ideas, and Parsons, his most important disciple. And so he and Hubbard were together, they practiced uh, all kinds of magic, and Uh, shared girlfriends, wives, things like that. I think Hubbard ended up running away with Parson's wife, but they also did kind of the notorious uh, Babylon working out in the desert, took place over a number of days out in the Mojave Desert. Um, And that was kind of an idea to kind of like turn the world into a magical place, kind of like what Crowley would say of the birth of the child. That was the goal of the Babylon working. Uh, I think that they succeed, Hubbard succeeded at least in, doing his part, which is the Church of Scientology. But uh, eventually they split, and Hubbard started Scientology. At the very beginning, it was kind of like an off- I mean, there's direct quotes of, uh, well, really from his son, from Hubbard's son, who has a, uh, had a bunch of different names. But Hubbard's son said that his father was very much influenced by Crowley and used to have his works and talk about him and said that scientology was basically uh black magic drawn out over time is what he said which i find very very interesting so that started i mean i think scientology it was dianetics 1948 after world war ii and then scientology started in 1950 with hubbard and uh yeah they i mean it's just incredible what his son's, I'm trying to find the quote here, but his son was uh, eventually ran from it, but he said that, you know, Crowley had this, uh, these documents, let's see what he says, parsonage, but yeah, so it was basically influenced by Crowley, I mean, there's all kinds of other mind control stuff going on in that, and
0: uh, and then a lot of that would be lifted by the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which was actually right. a Scientology spinoff group, the, uh, True. Moore and Marianne, uh, was that her name? Marianne Williams, uh, whoever the uh, t- the two founders of Scientology. Uh, Robert
1: de Grimston, Robert de Grimston,
0: and Cameron Marianne de Grimston, or yeah. something like that. Um I, I should have that on, on tap because I've done episodes on them in the past. Um Mary Ann Williams might be that lady who ran for president. I don't know. Sometimes I get wires crossed. I have too much of this stuff floating around in my in my head to keep it all straight sometime, but I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Her name was Mary Ann McLean. That's right. That's right.
1: Still there? Yes. Apologies you know, I mean, Here's to, the quote. This is 1952. Yeah. This is a quote from Crowley, 1952. This is very beginning at the at the very beginning. This is a taped lecture. You can hear the audio online. He says, A magician, the magic cults of the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries in the Middle East were fascinating. It's only modern work. It's anything to do with them. is a trifle wild in spots, but fascinating work in itself. And that's work written by Alistair Crowley, the late Alistair Crowley, my very good friend. He did himself a splendid piece of aesthetics built around those magic cults. It's very interesting reading to get a hold of a copy of a book, quite rare, but it can be obtained, The Master Therian. The Master Therian by Aleister Crowley. He signs himself the Beast, the Mark of the Beast, 666. Crowley exhumed a lot of the data from these old magic crow- cults. And then he goes on and says, the whole activity tends to make an individual completely independent of any limitation. The old Aleister Crowley had some interesting things to say about this. He wrote the book of the law, so he knew all that stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, something that I think that maybe we could get into next is because I want to cover just some more of these people that you cover in Children of the Beast. Um, And just because I think that it's very instructive that people not only understand who Crowley was and what he believed himself, but just how far his influence reaches into the culture even though he's not mentioned that much but maybe if you could talk a little bit about his influence on the counterculture because I've talked multiple times on this show and a lot of the other shows and kind of our sphere of of the podcast world like to talk about how the counterculture was this you know synthetic creation whether you're talking about the Manson family the Laurel Canyon scene and the work of Dave McGowan on these different subjects but crowley is someone who would be very influential on the counterculture movement whether it be with people like timothy leary or some of the music of the time like the beatles so if you wouldn't mind talking about that for a little bit
1: sure no problem i mean leary actually wasn't just influenced by crowley he thought he was carrying on the tradition of crowley and uh, we mentioned earlier about the whole corons on ritual that took place with Crowley and Newberg in the desert. Well, in the Algerian desert, Leary was there at Boussada in the same place with Crowley, and he's like ruminating how he's carrying on the work and that the synchronicities are incredible. So Leary actually had Crowley's I Ching sticks and used to uh, throw down Crowley's tarot cards, among other things. So I think that the LSD kind of popularization, while financed by the CIA, CIA was... Uh, uh, financing leary at the time and at millbrook that was all one big cia operation i didn't know it at the time uh, 20 uh, 10 years ago when i wrote the book but that popularization was kind of carrying on crowley's tradition of uh open drug use and uh, the proliferation of drugs with leary as the johnny appleseed of lsd but leary was also the kind of kind of counterculture definitely not a christian uh having other ideas one of his best friends was Robert Anton Wilson who wrote the Illuminatus trilogy but was also a Crowley uh admirer and was probably initiated one way or another but both of those two together they would write their books and were really uh counterculture influencers there's really no doubt about it so it's pretty incredible that those two a lot and that's kind of an overlooked element of them and they kind of had the, the view of a lot of these people of Leary and Wilson is that they were great liberators, kind of like Crowley. They were liberating people from the musty confines of the Christian, the dreary Christian world. I think that's the way they kind of were perceived in the public. But Leary's all over the place. He's at Altamont. He's uh, have friends with people who are now influencing Obama. He was rescued by the Weather Underground. Um, I mean, the connections between Leary and all these other people, he's the grand uh, Was it the godfather of uh, Winona Ryder? He's, I mean, all over the place. But yeah, so those are just two examples of along. Uh, we, we can go to the Beatles. Crowley's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. He may actually be Sgt. Pepper because they wrote in there, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play 20 years ago today. Crowley died in 47. I think that album came out 67, 68. Um, but yeah, the Beatles... Just Tons of things, and actually, John Lennon before he was shot, he said, Yeah, this whole band is about do what you will. Like, he literally said that in a Playboy interview, and I have that quote in the book. But, uh, yeah, their ideas and how they changed, they really did change. Kind of, they went from a poppy band, um, in the early 60s, writing stories about, uh, uh, you know, love and relationships to and hey, Jude, to this kind of like LSD promoting, druggy. Uh, obscure kind of occult lyric type band, which is really wild. So they're just another kind of influence, another group of people uh, influenced by Crowley and the ideas of magic. And actually, the John uh, McCartney said like this is all about magic with a K, so he he knew that term. So I think it's pretty remarkable that the one of the most influential, if not the most influential music band of all time, had these kind of occult connections often overlooked. And there's actually one of their. Albums has them making the same signs, these kind of magical uh, gestures that Crowley included in uh, his book, the encyclopedia book, The Equinox, is pretty interesting. So people were being definitely uh, subjected to, or in the Magic Mystery Tour too, uh, that's another thing that the Beatles were involved in. There's a picture of Jim Morrison of the Doors over a bust of Aleister Crowley. I can't remember which album it was, it was the back of one album. But he talks in Peace Frog too about the Rose of mysterious union about blood drinking, so that's another person Morrison huge in the sixties, seventies. Um, we can talk about J.K. Rowling. David Bowie was a huge. It went through a a Crowley phase. There's no question about that. And was it, I think my understanding is Bowie was a ceremony, ceremonial magician to the end. I think that was one of the great secrets about him, is that he was drawing inspiration from doing things that Crowley would be doing um and then alan moore the greatest comic book writer of all time has a lot of references to crowley there's actually crowley figures crowley references in v for vendetta they literally use like crowley's most known phrase which is do what thou wilt uh is in the comic book v for vendetta and there's actually a crowley figure in from hell that's actually crowley as a child uh, talking about magic so alan moore knows a lot about that yeah yeah
0: absolutely absolutely um and, and once again, Jimmy Fallon Gong has some good work on um, the the works of Alan Moore. He's done some episodes on that, and he's um, a very interesting figure who is completely enmeshed in um, occult ideas, and who really has a um, an incredible understanding of that. And you talked about the the Beatles, and you know how they were interested in all this stuff. Jim Morrison. I mean, Jim Morrison. His dad was also the one who was on the, uh, you know, you know, involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident and was involved with intelligence. And Dave McGowan talks about all that and weird scenes inside the canyon. And we've already mentioned him a little bit in reference to uh, Lucifer Rising, um, how he was initially going to do the soundtrack for it. But another one of the people who you talk about in Children of the Beast is Jimmy Page and. Jimmy Page was just, you know, no average admirer of Crowley by any means. And once again, one of the most influential bands of all time, Led Zeppelin. So I don't know if you'd like to talk just a little bit about Page and the Beleskin House and all that.
1: Right. So Page Zeppelin came in uh, and they he bought the Boleskine House. So Crowley to do what he was going to do, another working called the abramelon the mage working he bought a place on loch ness right the famous loch ness monster uh, site he bought a place called bullskin house which is burned down and is being rebuilt is my understanding but uh he went up there and then once page came into his money he bought bull crowley's bullskin house he actually bought a lot of stuff that crowley had as i mentioned early and he said that he was like that was his life it was the fusion of music music and magic and he admits to reading a lot of Aleister crowley he said like i read a lot of crowley and i was fascinated with his ideas so he was also kind of in, uh, reading other stuff the dragon rouge was one of the occult books i'm pretty sure he read but he said i think one of his statements page said was i think alistair crowley is completely relevant today we are still seeking for truth the search goes on crowley didn't have a very high opinion of women you know, so he kind of like had this, he knew a lot of, enough about Crowley to know his attitudes, behind a lot of stuff. So a lot of magical stuff, a lot of writing. Anger called Stairway to Heaven the most evil book he'd, I mean, the most evil song ever written. But I think it was kind of a tip of the hat between one magician to another because they know the secret meanings, the the stairway and the masonry and stuff like that. So, um, So I think that, there's just a lot of Page that's involved. They were t- he bought a lot of the st- of Crowley stuff. He actually had a, a cult bookstore at one point. Page did in downtown London. I don't know what happened to it, but uh, yeah. So it's pretty remarkable. There's actually a picture of Page in my book in front of Bulliskin Manor, so you can see it uh, that he had it. And the, the Bulliskin Manor's rumored to be still. Uh, haunted by, by ghosts that Crowley summoned, is like the rumor there. But um, it, is, it is interesting because he, and in his own writings, Page is so much of a Thelemite that he went back to Egypt on the day of the receipt of the Book of the Law 100 years earlier. So on April eighth two 2004, Page visited went back to Cairo, Egypt, with a bunch of other Thelemites to... Celebrate the receipt of the Book of the Law, like it's really incredible that he even admits that. So that's a very telling kind of uh, event that, only, like, mostly only initiates or people who were interested in Crowley would know about. But yeah, so he's
0: he's something and awesome. yeah. and the uh, uh, influence he has on musicians still goes down to this day. Um, there is the drummer of Tool, Danny Carey who um, is super big into Aleister Crowley. I think he's another one of these people who's bought you know, Crowley-related items at auction. And I haven't authenticated all of this myself, but um, I believe that his dad was a Freemason. And I think that um, he actually wrote the foreword to a book. Once again, I haven't authenticated this. This is just something I saw in an online article um, and the book's titled The Wickedest Books in the World, Confessions of an Alistair Crowley Bibliophile. But um, there's pictures of him that you can find um, in front of an Enochian magic board, um, which I think he supposedly used to, uh, you know, summon spirits and that he believes that he can summon demons to do his will through practicing ritual magic. And you look at the uh, music of Tool and stuff, um, I've had a some friends who went to a Tool concert, and it's all, you know, sacred geometry and all these different things, and they have very visually crazy shows, and basically all the people who like to go to these Tool shows, I mean, it's kind of notorious that people like to go, um, you know, trip <laughs> and go to these, you know, crazy right. elaborate shows with all these different lights and stuff like that, and then you look at danny carey you know the drummer is interested in all of this crowley stuff too um so but, is the
1: singer so is the singer. So they're not oh, alone the singer's involved in that
0: stuff too yeah uh, maynard what's his name like i can't remember yeah but one of his best that, friends is
1: joe rogan right
0: yes well yeah he's he's buddies with joe rogan that's absolutely right the guy who's Um, you know, a big proponent of uh, DMT and and all this different stuff, which um, I think listeners of my show... Yeah, and I think listeners of my show know that I think that a lot of the alien phenomenon, what isn't, you know, um, intelligence disinformation and stuff, I do think that there is, you know, something to the phenomenon and that it's demonic. But of course, you know, that goes to my ideas as a Christian or, or whatever. And I think that some of my listeners are probably on board that these are, you know, interdimensional demons. Some of them probably uh, might think that's a little bit far out, but, um, and that, you know, I I do think that a lot of what's going on with the psychedelics, once again, something that's been, you know, um, promoted by intelligence agencies, and they're the ones who've gotten it to be a big thing in the culture through the counterculture movement and stuff like that. And I do think that there's, you know, a demonic element to that, but hey, that's just my two cents. But some one last person who I'd like you to talk about a little bit is J.K. Rowling because you know, I mean, the Harry Potter phenomenon is just such a huge thing. I mean, it's still huge today, you know, um, and it's something that kids are really interested in. And I remember when I was growing up because I, I'm a young guy, I'm in my earlier twenties, um, and when I was growing up and these books were coming out, um, I, I remember reading them and I remember friends waiting for these books to, to come out. And I grew up in a, um, a Protestant Christian community and that there was, you know, people who, uh, you know, friends of mine who their parents didn't want them reading it. And, um, you know, my dad kind of became privy to that later on. He didn't restrict what I could read, but he – um Definitely thought there was something weird going on there. And I remember as a young man thinking, ah, you know, the uh, the parents who are, you know, don't allow their kids to read it. They're just being, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 that's just kind of like a panic yes. thing. You know, I mean, that's that's a little stringent. The, 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 it's it's just fiction. What What's the harm in it? So I thought it was very interesting to see J.K. Rowling mentioned in in your book, Children of the Beast.
1: Right. I mean, the thing is, is that I think that that book series sold over 400 million copies, best-selling series of books in human history, published by supposedly some single mom writing in a pub. It's a great story. I think it's bogus. Uh, I think that there's too much knowledge there. She's very knowledgeable if she wrote this book herself, but uh the pub- book was published i think on a on a imprint a publishing house that had only published one other book so it's very the whole thing is very strange but the knowledge in this book series is right in tune with the western esoteric tradition and crowley so even her name is kind of a play on roller crawling rolling it's weird her her real middle name doesn't have a K. she took on k which is the 11th letter of the alphabet right so 11, like I've stated earlier in this talk, very important number for Crowley. It's the number of Thelema, It's the number of like uh, the five and the six, the pentagram and the hexagram coming together. So uh, she took on the K herself. She also has been said everybody needs a little magic in them. So it's almost like she's like a Beatles creation, which we want to talk about culture creation. Beatles is another story. But uh, even Harry Potter, his whole name is eleven letters, right? Harry Potter, and Potter is a reference to the notion of, you know, from the Western esoteric tradition of turning clay into gold, right? Alchemy. So the whole alchemical notion of what Potter is doing is the kind of uh, is the is the kind of adventure in the whole Harry Potter series, and we can go into all the symbols that are in there, the chessboard and things like that. But uh, just the starting out in Harry and uh, Harry Potter's wand, his first wand that he picks out. Do you want to guess how many inches it is?
0: Well, if I had to guess, it would be eleven.
1: <laughs> there you go. So it's eleven. So he he gets it with the arrival of his eleventh birthday, right? So she knew the kind of core ele- elements of magic when she made this character. Probably made it easier. Easier, but I think. Uh, I think it was actually an epic piece of culture creation. And she includes the name of like a known, uh, a known kind of alchemist by the name of Nicholas Flamel. So he's in uh, mentioned in this book. And I, I really just put that in there in the book, just as a reference, because I think there's so much occultism in the books and films that, uh, it would probably, I could probably write a 10 page paper about it, but I think it's important for people to know that, uh, this stuff is in there. You're being exposed to it. You're being like, imagine like growing up, like when you're 18, maybe being exposed to witchcraft, but then you've already seen all the J.K. Rowling films. So you know some of this stuff is real. So your memory already uh, imprinted or implanted with these concepts, even before you know their occult relevance or meaning. So I think that in that regard of a full kind of uh, aeon of Horus, culture jamming sense that these are incredibly successful now.
0: yeah and and i think it's very easy to see how um you know not to sound like the uh you know people who i used to think were too uptight but i guess i'm becoming one of them <laughs> but i mean you can see how this could prime young people just to um take an interest in magic and you know we, we we've talked in this interview about how you know even some of the wider you know quote unquote threads of of magic like with you know Gerald Gardner's Wicca and stuff like this. I mean they really do take their influence from people like Crowley and these you know uh, you know black magicians, if if you will. And so, I mean, you can see how just it could create that that interest there for for people, you know, and make it seem more innocent. And, you know, I mean, what, what's the story of Harry Potter? You have this, you know, uh, kind of black magician Voldemort or whatever, but then you have the good white magician, you know, Harry Potter, who, um, you know, is, is fighting against all, all the evil magic that's out there and how this can, you know... Kind of serve as um, like a prelude to um, a young person's an initiation, and I. It's probably no coincidence that you know with the Harry Potter books and stuff like that, you also see an increased interest in Wicca amongst young people and stuff. I mean, I'm I'm a younger person myself, and it's definitely not something that's uncommon, you know, for people my age to, uh, uh, especially uh, ladies to. Get an interest in. Um, so I, I found that to be very interesting.
1: Me too. My understanding is that the number one religion amongst high school girls in Los Angeles is Wicca. So it'll be an interesting uh, three or four decades in this world as those people grow up.
0: Yeah, that's that. It is very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. And it's interesting to see how much of the those beliefs that they'll re- retain onto, or if that's you know just kind of a, a, uh, a, a fad type thing with them, I guess time will be the only thing to uh, bear that out. But I think that we've done a good job of, of covering a lot of the people who um, have been influenced by Crowley, as well as talking about Crowley himself. So when I stop the recording, just once again, stay on for just a second until it uploads. It'll, it'll give you a notification. But, I mean, do you think that we've covered everything in, in this interview? Is there anything else or anyone else that you'd like to cover before we uh, maybe wrap things up and let you plug all your stuff?
1: No, I think that we covered a lot of it. I mean, I think the book is pretty thorough, and there's a lot more details about Crowley and Prophet of Evil and Children of the Beast. But uh, I think we had a good overview of kind of some of the stuff in there. But I think I did a lot of research for both of the books. I think I have 800 footnotes in Children of the Beast. So there's a lot of references and a lot of uh, research uh, trails if you want to get some ideas on what to research, read Children of the Beast.
0: Absolutely. And there's great appendices and, you know, like an index of terms and stuff that's going to be useful for lots of people who want to research into this stuff and so i highly recommend recommend that people check that out along with all of your other work. So if you want, um, make sure that my listeners know where they can find all your work, where they can find your books, where the best place to purchase this stuff is. He's also got a lot of great documentaries out there. So all my listeners go, go check that out about whether it be uh, Crowley or, I mean, also some interesting stuff. I'll have to have you back on sometime to talk about it, but like the smiley face killers and, and stuff like that. So you, you really have so much out there. And I mean, you, you have, tons of episodes of your podcast that you do where you cover all kinds of interesting subjects all over the board with a ton of great people so i also recommend that people check that out but where all can people find you
1: yeah you can find me podcast as william ramsey investigates on any podcast distribution site i'm at about 965 episodes so on a variety of different subjects my books can be found on amazon or you can buy signed copies from com, my website and uh, all of the documentaries are on vimeo but thanks uh, thanks for having me it's great to talk with you
0: absolutely everybody go check out william ramsey's work